I think it's for validation in the industry because as animation, we're the bastard children and looked down upon. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Growing up the youngest of five in rural Illinois, Brenda Chapman's passion for drawing was encouraged by her mother. Working her way through school, Brenda began her former studies at Illinois College before eventually applying and being rejected by CalArts. Brenda did eventually make it to CalArts, where she met, among others, Joe Ramft, an encounter that changed the trajectory of her career. Over the course of this conversation, Brenda shares her experience in the industry, from her first animation job on Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling and her early career at Disney, to writing and directing the Oscar-winning Brave. She also speaks about the importance of mentorship and how she stays creative. Here's our conversation with Brenda Chapman. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about growing up in Illinois. Uh-huh. Did you grow up on a farm? No. I was the townie. Um, I grew up in a little town of 150 people, and my father was the manager of the grain elevator. I lived two doors down from the church where we had Girl Scouts and 4-H, and it was sort of the town meeting place because it was just one church town, and I worked at the Beeson Cafe when I was a teenager. <laughs> which was quite the place where all the farmers and their crews would come. And, you know, a lot of little cafes throughout the Midwest, they'll collect farmer's caps from all over and hang them on the wall. Well, these people collected matchbooks. And filled with matches, they would put them on the wall. (laughs) It was like, and years later, after I had moved away to California, it burned down. It did eventually burn down. I just don't know what they were thinking. I really don't. You're the youngest of five. Were you the only girl? No, I was the second girl. The two girls were the youngest, um, but my sister was nine years older than me. And and, uh, then I had three older brothers that were eight years older than her. So there's 21 years difference between me and the oldest. So you were kind of like an only child then. Kind of, yeah. Spoiled rotten, I know. That's what I'm told. (laughs) (laughs) Was, I mean, it doesn't sound like anybody in your family was artistic, were, besides yourself? My mother. And actually, my second brother always leaned towards it, but never was encouraged for some reason. So he did. So he talks about how he likes to paint, but he really doesn't. But yeah, my mother, um, when she was a little girl growing up during the Depression, she went to a one-room schoolhouse and she was raised by her grandparents. She loved to draw. She loved to artistic. And one teacher, one new young teacher, uh, she tells used to tell me this story, This young teacher recognized that she was talented. And so she walked her home from school one day and asked um, her grandparents if she could give my mom lessons after school. And my grandfather, my great-grandfather, was furious. He said, don't you be putting any ideas into my granddaughter's head. You know, it's a waste of time to educate a woman as it is. And so the next year, that 
young teacher didn't come back. My mom always thought she got fired because of her, because her dad was on the school board, and she always felt bad about that. And then she was taken out of school at eighth grade. She only had she got a GED in her went in um, in her sixties. I was really proud of her. She you know got and and then got an equivalent to a, a college degree for um, she was a dietitian, and so she. You know, so she worked that, but she never became an artist. So, but so when she saw my interest and and love of it, she really encouraged it. So she used to play when I was little, and even I loved it. Even when I was older, we'd play the scribble game where she'd make a scribble, and then I'd try to make something out of it. And I'd make a scribble, and she'd make something out of it. You know, it was just, it was it was fun. And uh, so yeah, she was very proud of me for following my dreams. Was drawing always the thing, the creative thing for you? Yeah, it was drawing. And um, I took piano lessons. The music was in there as well, but I, it was, I was very much more interested in, in visual art, you know, that kind of thing. I painted a little bit, but I'm, I'm not that great. So. <laughs> I read somewhere that when you were in college, you basically took all the art classes that you could, including dance? That was a product of n not getting into CalArts. So I'd taken all the art classes. I won awards at my community college, you know, and it was great. And they were very supportive. But when I applied to CalArts, I had to work a couple of years because I had to put myself through school because we didn't have much money. Um, I applied to CalArts and I didn't get in. And they said I needed more um, life drawing skills and, you know, drawing emotion, gesture drawing kind of stuff. So I went back to my local college and my old art teacher had moved to another schools. So there was a new art teacher there. And he um, knew nothing about animation, but he kind of figured it out. He was a really great guy. And um, so he, he said, go to the dance class and sketch them. But they wouldn't let me go sit in the dance class unless I applied for the dance class. So I did, but I never danced. I just sat in a corner and drew them. <laughs> Even after CalArts rejected you the first time, which is shocking to me. Was the goal always to go there? Yes, but I'd thrown all my eggs in that basket the first time. There were three schools. I applied to CalArts, Art Institute, and I'm getting old because I can't remember the third one now, but I got accepted at all three the second time around. And then, um, but I still wanted to go to CalArts. So you move across the country, California, here I come. Uh-huh. <laughs> And my little Ford Escort, so loaded down that it was sort of, you know, the back wheels were lower than the front wheels, <laughs> trying to go up the mountains, you know, four-cylinder, not, not a good combination. I, I can see the visual, though. How proud was your mom? I think she was proud, but she was more sad than proud because I was the youngest. And I think, honestly, if she'd had her way, I would have, she would have preferred that I just stay home and take care of her in her old age because she was an older mother back in that day. She she was 40 when she had me. So that was actually driving out of that driveway was the hardest thing I think I ever did because she was just standing there crying. But she wanted me to go, but she didn't want me to go, but she wanted me to go. She, you know, it was that kind of a thing. So, but she was proud, but sad. Was that the first time that you were kind of like away from home too? Since my brothers were so much older, I'd been to California to visit my brother before on my own. Um, he flew me out a couple of times. Um, but yeah, uh, for, yeah, I, cause I had an apartment during my junior college when I was in like, but that was like 10 minutes away from my mom, you know, kind of my first time to just really strike out on my own. Was it hard? 
It was a little scary, but it was exciting. It was so, I was so ready for it. I mean, I was 21, you know, I was ready. I'd been, you know, it'd been hard to stay home and live with my mom while all my other friends were away at college and watch them start their lives. And then at 21, I'm starting school again. And so I didn't care that I was in school and everybody else had graduated because I was having a great time at CalArts. But that two years prior to going was really hard. I just felt a bit like a failure, (laughs) you know, while everybody else was moving forward and I was kind of stuck. Was it hard to kind of stay on track with that dream? No, because I guess I'm stubborn and I have a bit of a one-track mind sometimes. <laughs> it's like, that's what I want. I'm going to do it. You know? <laughs> so I'm just going to keep trying. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, the thing is, it was hard to think of how else to get out. That was seemed to be my... It's not that I hated where I grew up or anything. It just I knew there was no future. You know, there, I, I didn't want to just... The status quo, it's like, I don't want to work at Walmart, thank you. I don't want to work at a grocery store. I don't want to work in a nursing home. I don't want to work. And I, and I, my heart goes out to those people who that's what their jobs are. Um, you know, and some of them love it and some of them are fine. And, and that's, and they have a great family life and, you know, or they love being around where their friends are and all that's, I'm not judging. It's just for me. I, I needed more. I needed to do something else. What did you learn at CalArts that sort of prepared you for the career that you then now have? I'd found my people, my tribe kind of a thing, and I loved the ability to speak a certain language that I hadn't been able to speak growing up other than with my mother, of, you know, that creative speak whatever that is and and so the collaboration um with with that kind of thing i loved that and um and then you know it taught me all the different aspects of you know technically of animation and and what i learned was what where i could focus you know, I, it's like I went there to be an animator, you know, the traditional animator, and then realized that that wasn't very fun for me. It was very tedious. And I was like, I'm not sure this is, but story was what I loved. And, and funny thing is that I didn't, that didn't click in my brain until, uh, Joe Ramp saw my storyboards from my third film, the one that got me hired that Ron Clements and John Musker saw. And, and wanted me for Little Mermaid. <laughs> it was like, the, those were up on the wall and Joe Ramph was teaching the freshman at that time. And he stopped by just to say hi. We were friends and he goes, Hey, those are pretty good. Did you ever think about getting into story? And it was like, light bulb overhead clicks on. <laughs> I was like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that sounds like the thing. But you know, that no one ever got hired into story in Disney. You know, that's something you eventually, got to do later and so I was encouraged by Mike Giamo who was my story teacher at the time Um, all the teachers were saying put a cleanup portfolio in because that's what you'll get hired for you'll have to start at the bottom and work your way up even though some of the guys were being told apply for rough animation you know (laughs) it's like whatever but so I did I 
put a cleanup portfolio in and then, um, but at the back, Mike Jamla said, put a copy of your boards in and a, a note saying you'd eventually interested in a story related position. And I got hired as a story trainee. <laughs> so that was kind of mind blowing for me. I wasn't expecting it and I was just over the moon excited. You said something kind of almost in passing that I think is so typical of women in underrepresented industries. Uh, you know, for the guys, it was like you can kind of bypass that entry level and go right to the next level. But as a woman, you're going to be right down here. How do you even begin to process that and know that that's probably something you're going to have to fight your entire career? Honestly, I think I was a little thick. I didn't notice it at the time. It wasn't until later. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I remember Russ and those guys were applying for a rough animation, but they told me to apply for, you know, it was just later. I just, whoosh, over my head, I think it's just kind of a standard thing that you just don't realize until you step back and look at it. And that that's that's, for me, kind of how I saw that. And I mean, you were going to school at a time where there weren't a lot of women in the animation program, right? No, uh-uh. there were, I think, four of us, four or five of us in a class of 34, 35, something like that. And did everybody continue on? Um, from my class? Yeah, Juliet Stroud was one of them. She she was a cleanup artist. Really good one, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, she made, she made a lovely career out of that for quite a long time. Um, in my specific class, I think some went into television and design jobs and, um, maybe graphic novels. You mentioned TV and that when I was looking at your sort of like IMDB listing, I guess you would call it, you, you did some work in television early on and I almost fell out of my chair <laughs> because you did some work on the, uh, uh, the wrestling, the, the, the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling was my first animation job. <laughs> I saw a couple of clips of that. That looks like this amazing capsule from the 80s. I loved it. Is. it. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> were you doing those like sort of as you were still in school? Was that right after school or yeah. backing up a little bit? I had to put myself through school. And my first year, though, was paid for. My dad passed away when I was 19. And he had an unexpected, my mom discovered he had an unexpected um, insurance policy. That was enough to pay for my first year tuition. But she didn't have a lot of money and, and everything. So I, you know, I, I eventually paid that back. But it was, that's what got me at CalArts to start with. And then it was like, I have to find a job after my first year during the summer to be able to at least survive. And I would take out student loans and whatever. So I had to find a job and I was kind of desperate. And I still remember driving in to LA and applying for a job, but another animator, another student, a guy um, went with me, he said, can I get you right? He didn't have a car. And so he, he was just seeing if how, what they thought of his portfolio. He didn't, I, I don't know what I was thinking and saying, yes, you can come with me because he didn't really need to get a job, but he, he got offered the job. I didn't, but then he didn't want the job. So, um, I went back again later and tried again and they, and then they hired me as like, I just cleaned up props and stuff and, and, um, 
and did that and and cleaned up rough storyboards and that kind of stuff. But then towards the end of that summer, before I had to go back to school, they said we need someone in Tokyo to to check lip sync because all the Japanese animators, most of them didn't speak English and they had like limited mouth shapes that were on the exposure sheets and whatever. And they and most of the people that were working at the LA studio were designers and and that kind of thing. They hadn't animated. But because I'd been to CalArts and they'd seen my little animation test, but it was silent. We didn't work with sound at, at all the first year. So so I'm like, okay, I've never worked with dialogue before, but I know exposure sheets, but I don't know. So hmm, that's it. Okay. I'll go if you really want me because that's why they offered it to me because I had some animation <laughs> experience at school. <laughs> so I went there and and it was uh, terrifying because you know I you know I'm really fresh off the turnip truck from Illinois. I mean literally I just had CalArts that you know CalArts itself was a bit of a a stretch for me because the nude pool and everything. I was like. I'm not in Kansas anymore, kind of thing. But then to go to Tokyo and just like, it was just that lost in translation where when Bill Murray's sitting in the car, you know, jet lag looking around, I, boy, did I feel that. But I get to the studio, which I had to get to by myself the very next morning um, because the woman who was supposed to take me had the flu. So she through the door was telling me, and I'm like, you know, trying to get through on a train. And it's like, holy moly, where am I? I'm in, on Mars. But then I get there and it's all Canadians. Nicest people in the world. Oh, you don't know what you're doing? Okay, come here. I'll show you. It was just... <laughs> It was a guy named Woody Yoakum. I'll never forget him. He was amazing. I love that man. He's like Mr. a Canadian Mr. Rogers, really. I mean, he just – and so sweet and so helpful and, and, and great. And I worked with a guy named Greg Bailey. Great group of guys. And uh, anyway, so, yeah. And so CalArts let me have credit for my time. I was there until November, like right after Thanksgiving – or right up to Thanksgiving, um, American Thanksgiving. Um, and um, they they gave me credit for my time there since I was working in the industry. Uh, what was Tokyo like? Lots of lights and lots of people. <laughs> and I didn't speak the language. <laughs> it was lovely. I mean, I'm just, it was so great to just, you know, it's like open your mind and see the world and see other cultures. And uh, so, yeah, on the weekends, I'd either go out with some of the guys i mean the the only women there were the japanese coordinators and the um, editorial department was full of women there was a canadian at a editorial department and they were great and uh, i i think the assistant editor was named kelly and i can't remember her last name but i think she was like okay because i was copying everything she i thought she was the coolest person i'd ever met in my life the way she dressed the way she talked the way she walked the way the shoes so i would like just go and buy the same dress the same shoe and, and she was like um mini me. <laughs> yeah little mini me trying to grow up <laughs> sorry kelly wherever you are you were finding yourself so, so you go back to school, you're at CalArts, you discover that storytelling is actually maybe something that you need to, you want to pursue. And then you go from CalArts directly into Disney. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> actually gotten hired with a lot of my friends at CalArts on the Mighty Mouse series as a rough layout 
person, but I hadn't really signed anything or actually committed yet. And then I got the news that they wanted me at Disney. So I said, sorry, I'm, I'm going to Disney. And they got all huffy, but it was like, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't even know how much you were planning on paying me. You know, it was that kind of, so I felt like I made the right choice. But was Disney, had you, had you thought that that was the goal? Oh yeah. Disney was everybody's goal, you know? everybody's goal was Disney. I really wasn't expecting, but I was thrilled. So, yeah, and I I was thinking Ron Clements this weekend because I didn't find out until this year that it was Ron and John who saw my film and and asked for me. Because when I, and it's a story I've told for years, um, is when I went in for my entrance interview, um, the guy who was in charge of, hiring or whatever um made it really clear he didn't want me there because i was a woman and that was that i mean he basically said well i'm getting flack from the new guys upstairs meaning jeffrey and michael um that they didn't have women in the story department and you know and and so i'm the right price fresh out of school cheap and i can you know and we'll give you six weeks test you out if you don't make it we'll just get someone else i mean it was just so and it, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work. I was just so, so Midwestern gung ho. I was, I was, you know, it didn't, it hurt, but it, I didn't let it get me down. But I just thought I needed to work harder to prove myself. But then after that gateway, I was suddenly entered a bubble of really nice people, nice guys that just treated me like I was part of the team. I didn't. I just did not feel any kind of sexism once I got past that. I was given so many opportunities and so much support. And Roger Allers, Ed Gombert, Gary Trousdale, um, Vance Gary, Joe Ramft. I mean, I just had these wonderful, legendary mentors. I went from being oversheltered in Beeson, Illinois, to then getting into Disney and being oversheltered even at DreamWorks, I was treated very well. Jeffrey was great. So then after I left there and got in the real world, boy, I was not prepared. <laughs> I really wasn't. Didn't have a clue. <laughs> and you came into Disney right at sort of the beginning of like the renaissance of... I caught that wave and I wrote it and I was, I yeah, right place, right time, right people. I just, I know, I know I'm fortunate. I know. Because you were sort of there right at the beginning and you worked through a lot of the films that are kind of seen as sort of the heyday of Disney in that period. And then you left. Was it, was it hard to make that decision to kind of not jump ship, but to move on to something else? It, it was. I mean, I really love the people I worked with, but I felt there was a change happening there and it felt a little more corporate. I mean, they, they, after Lion King, I felt like Lion King was sort of a wonderful, horrible thing at the same time because it made so much money. Suddenly all the money people, you know, all I, the eye of Sauron was looking at us. And suddenly it, it just felt less like the creatives had the lead. It felt more like, okay. And I know it was always about making money, but this, shifted it was like we were being told what we could or couldn't do as opposed to here we're making this 
and being creative. And, and so now you market it, you know, it's like, yes, you've agreed that this is something you could do. Okay. Now, no, it was, it had started to subtly shift. And the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge was a small thing, but when they were planning to move us to the hat building in, in Burbank, the new building on the lot or just off the lot that they'd built for animation, Michael Eisner had, I remember we were having these meetings where they would, you know, sort of prep us for the move. And here are all these story artists. You know, there were some of us that were younger, but there were some people that were in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, you know. But the team leaders, the people, you know, they were in their 20s and they sat on chairs and they made us all sit on the floor like we were in kindergarten. And we all had our move packets and they said, now, don't open your move packet. And then some people, you know, I'm going to look in. We said, don't open your move packet. I mean, they treated us like we were children. And I just said, okay, I'm done. Jeffrey had called me. He'd already been fired and said, you know, it just, it was like, this is, this is what I'm feeling is that we're being treated like children and need to be wrangled like that. And it's like, I just that just rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> so that was part of the reason I left. You know, that was the, the, the straw on the camel's back, so to speak. But, but then Jeffrey, we had worked together and, and um, he got to know me on Lion King and saw that I could stand up to him. I wasn't, you know, going to just say yes to everything he said. And I think he liked that. And so we had, and he liked my creative input, you know, I mean, it was on top of that, but but um, so he um, he talked me into going and starting a new place. And I it felt like, you know what, Disney needs some competition. So when you went over there, was Prince of Egypt already something that had been offered to you? No. <laughs> no, I went over there to, to, to build the story department and, and put that together and, and, and sort of hopefully be the senior person over there for him. And initially, I think the plan was he wanted Joe Ramp to direct it. He'd said, Joe's coming over. Joe said he was going over. Um, and then I said yes. And then Joe said, oh, I'm going to Pixar instead. I was like, oh. So I think what Jeffrey had planned was that Joe was going to direct and I was going to be his head of story. But that, of course, didn't work out. And um, Jeffrey had asked all these people. He wouldn't even tell me what the project was before i wouldn't go until he told me though i was just like and even then i was like oh really a movie with god in it? are you crazy <laughs> but he um he does kevin before i went he does he does a lot of people to to and um to direct and everybody <laughs> turned him down and i remember i was over there and we were started we were all there were like maybe a dozen of us had gone over at that point um from Disney and we were kind of working on it. But then I remember being in a meeting with uh, Penny Finkelman Cox and Sandy Rabins and Jeffrey and uh, Jeffrey had asked me and I said, no, Jeffrey, I know story. I don't know these other departments as well. And, you know, I'm, I think I'd serve you better in story. But he goes, he said, okay, you guys, have you found a director yet? And they said, no. And he just looks at me and goes, Brenda, you're directing until I find somebody else. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> but 
you know, the thing, uh, the thing is, number one, he believed that I could do it. Number two, which said a lot for me, gave me that confidence. But also, once I started, you know, talking to the visual development people and saying, okay, realizing that everything everyone was doing was supporting the story, then it clicked and I was like, okay, I, I can do this. And then I started enjoying doing it. And I, and I think people liked how I treated them and, you know, how I worked with them. So I felt like I was getting good feedback. So I just said, okay, Jeffrey, if you want me to stay in the position, I'll, I'll do it. And he said, good. And, and then we're bringing Amblemation and you're getting two partners. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's like I'd met Steve Hickner, hadn't met Simon Wells, and I was really nervous, but that all worked out great. So now you have these two other partners working with you on the project. How does that work when you're, you know, sort of splitting duties with a couple of other people on a project of that size? Um, well, you know, I'd seen it um, done a few different ways. Um, you know, when you have like like directors like Ron and John who work well together and trust each other and have very similar, they can break that up into sequences and split the film up that way. But I'd also seen it where the directors didn't get along and were at odds in how they had a vision for the end. So if they, if they split up sequences, it was disjointed and it didn't quite work. Um, so Simon and Steve and I, sort of put our heads together and we agreed, okay, story is the most important and animation with the acting is very important. So they, cause they wanted to split us up and, and sequences and like that. And we just said, no, not going to happen that way. Here's how we want to do it. And they listened. <laughs> it was great. But so we stayed together and we went to every story meeting together, every um, animation um, handoff and approval together. And then we split up, um, departments so that things would be coherent through each department. So, um, Simon took, uh, workbook and layout, which basically I give him credit for the cinematography of that film, which was stunning. He's, he's really got an amazing eye. And um, Steve took a mega job of cleanup because of all the, the crowds and the slave. And then also um, melding the CG, we were, you know, because it was early days in that. The CG with the uh, hand-drawn and everything, that was a huge thing. And I took effects and background, you know, the color end of things. But then effects was sort of a wild card for me. It was like... I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's how we split it up was was by department so that it f feels like a cohesive film. You know, the the characters are all who they're supposed to be, the look is consistent, the pacing is consistent, you know, and what it should be. So and that movie turned out to be like there were a lot of firsts there. But, I mean, you were the first woman to to direct an animated what was studio film. When when you got that job, when you were working on that project, was, did that ever cross your mind? It only crossed my mind because people kept saying, "Hey, you're, hey, you're," and yeah. for me, it was just like, "I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing a job I want to do. I'm just, I just want to make a good movie. I just want to," and and that's the thing. It's 
I, I get credited for being the first this or that, but it's like, that was never my goal. It was never my, it, I just wanted to work in animation. I wanted to work at Disney and then I wanted to help start this other company and I wanted to, you know, it wasn't about that. And it, you know, I've, I've sort of been a little forced into that position and ex and it, having to accept that and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored that I've inspired other women to step up and uh, go after their, their dreams and what their goals and that kind of thing. But I mean, I just, that's all I did was I just worked for mine, you know, so that's what I would hope that they would do even if I wasn't there. It's like, just, just work for it. Just go for it. Once you're done Prince of Egypt, I mean, you're all, we've all, you've always been creative. I'm assuming that Brave was probably already floating around back there in some way, shape, or form, was it? Um, not really. Aspects of it were the, the Celtic world, the, the, that was sort of the Scottish aspect. I loved those kind of folk tales and fairy tales and that world. Films like Secret of Rowan Inish, one of my favorite, you know, live action films. And, and, the, and I, you know, I was trying to, uh, when I went back to DreamWorks after I'd had my daughter, um, I was trying to develop a project about Selkies um, and Tom Moore, you know, ended up doing that. So, so yeah, I had a, a type of film I wanted to make, but it wasn't until my daughter came into my life and started school and started becoming really a pain and she was just so hard. <laughs> but, and, you know, I, but I loved her spirit. You know, I loved that she, you know, stood up for herself. And, but at the same time, it was incredibly frustrating when you're trying to get her ready for school in the morning and have to get there and get to work on time. And, you know, it was just kind of crazy. Um, so it was then, you know, it was the drive back and forth. Usually the drive after dropping her off, you know, it was just like my head was filled with it. And I realized I, I have to channel this somewhere. So that that's when it all sort of started coming together is after I moved up to the Bay Area. And when you started to sort of think that you need to channel, channel this into something, did it start as like writing or sketching or how did that start? Both. Both. Yeah. I'd, I'd scribble some stuff. I'd, I, you know, I had a big... Uh, I think I still have it somewhere, a big piece of animation paper that just has some notes on it and some little scribbles and and um, just starting to build it. And then I started collecting photographs of the world that I um, wanted. And I think I initially thought it was just sort of this generic Northern European world. And then it seemed like all of my imagery that I was collecting were these rugged castle ruins and mountainous things of like Scotland and Wales and and then I realized Scotland you know just kept funneling towards Scotland and um you know even in the beginning I knew you know I wanted the daughter to be this wild child so I was drawing her with this crazy hair and so my daughter doesn't have curly hair but you know it was always bedhead in the morning you know but 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 it's just like okay to illustrate that you know in a film that's probably the best way to do it and then you know having the mother be more so i have rough sketches of them i'm not a designer but i you know i could get that kind of thing across and and then uh, when i did settle on scott we you know we're thinking of 
different actors, you know, because I do like when I'm writing, I like to have an actor in mind. But Emma Thompson was always the mother, always. I, I don't know why, always the mother. And then, and then as I honed in, I think um, Jim Broadbent came to mind, you know, for the dad. But then it was like, mm, something's not right about. It. And then, then when I hit Scotland, it was like Billy Connolly. There's no one else who could play the dad but Billy Connolly. You know, it was just like, Boom. So when both of them said yes, I was so relieved. But Emma was a little harder to convince, but Billy just was like out of the bat. Yeah, I'll do it. It's like, thank you. <laughs> so how much of the story was already in place when like, I'm, I'm not sure how the process happened. Like, did you already have this idea and the basic story in place when you went over to Pixar or did you shop it around? Like, came up while I was at Pixar. I, would, I went to Pixar um on the invitation of Joe Ramft, uh, who was saying, please come up, we need help with the female characters. And then I got there and John had no interest in changing the female characters. And so it was way too late, but I boarded a little bit on it for a little while. And then um, Mary Coleman, the head of development, I, I don't know if she still is or not, um, said, you know, we'd love for you to, you know, and I think John had intimated he needed um, to have a f female lead for a character because he had nieces and whatever but i also think they they wanted to open things up i thought about it and and it was a much bigger so it would have made a great novel <laughs> my original uh thought process there was another um the witch had a daughter as well and and it was this and then she was the villain that 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 daughter you know she turned into a bear you know it was just it was a much bigger thing and then um but I, I pitched the general idea, you know, where, you know, the mother turns into a bear and ends up saving her daughter from the other bear. And but but it, the, it was a story of a mother daughter love, you know, and, and how they need to listen to each other and 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 from the heart kind of a thing. And um, and John liked it. I didn't have to pitch three ideas. He he went for that one off the, the top. And then as you know, we developed it. It was like, okay, this is way too complicated. I need to really cut it in half and, you know, and, and rethink it. And then we came up with the structure that's, that's there now. How long was that process, that writing process? It's, it's hard to say at this point because it, it dragged on. That film took eight years to make, not because the story didn't ever get there. It was because um, at one point, I would, I, they were talking to me about coming out before Up because Up hadn't found itself yet. And so, and I was pretty solid and then Up found itself. And of course, Pete is going to get the first film out, you know, so that that's how that works. And, um, and then Disney bought Pixar and then Disney wanted sequels. They didn't want a new one yet. They wanted, so I kept getting bumped year after year after year. And then they just had a lot of time to muck with it. When do you realize or how far do you go with an idea before you realize that, you know, that's not working. I might need to step away from this. And, you know, you, you talk a little bit about how that original concept was so large. So I'm curious, how long did you kind of muck around with all of these other characters and plot ideas before you kind of settled on your key story? At the studios, you can muck around with story for a long time before you'll get the go ahead i probably about six months um and then then it was like okay let's let's 
let's trim this down. Let's figure it out. But I, you know, I, yeah, about a little over six months, somewhere in there. And generally speaking, sort of, do you give yourself a timeline when you're working on projects? Kind of say, I'm going to work on this for a while, see where it goes. And if at DreamWorks, yes, I, I just said here, you know, uh, they, they had given me time to work on the Selkie project and everything. And then, and it's really them who you just keep working. If, if you think they're going to po- have a possibility, you keep working on it and you keep adjusting it, you keep fixing it until they say no more. Mm-hmm. And then you stop. Um, you know, I have never reached that saturation point for myself. It's like, I, I have a children's book, not even, it's not a child. Yeah. I have a children's book that I've been working on since it's based on my, um, my student film that I've always thought, oh, I'm going to make this a picture book someday. And, but because I've always had a job, it was just like, I never, I was so exhausted, but I'm not one of those people who can write books and illustrate them and work at the animation studio. I just don't know how they do it. It's like, no, I'm going to be a pile of jello over here now. So, (laughs) um, but I have a, a novel that I'm, I'm wanting to write that, um, that I've had the idea for years, you know, and, and, uh, and I just, it keeps evolving in my head, but also as I write things down or sketch things out, you know, and I'll leave that for a while and come back to it. It's like, oh, but I, maybe I'll shift it this way or that way. So I'm hoping I'll finish that. <laughs> More closer to the near future than, than it has been, but it, I've had that in my back pocket for a couple of decades. So okay, we're going to come back to a couple of these things that you've brought up. But I'm curious about the shift from, you know, animation to live action. So I mean, so you win an Oscar, which is like an amazing thing. I'm curious, where do you keep your Oscar? You know, I, I would put it somewhere in a cabinet but kevin's like no we're sitting it out so it's by our television you know that for a while he wanted it on the mantle in the main room and i just was like i this is too embarrassing please can we move it so at least it's down in our family room where we're really the only ones who see it unless someone comes over for a movie night you know so and every year at the oscars friends want me to bring it so that they can all hold the oscar while we're watching the oscars so that's pretty much <laughs> but you know i'd use it for a doorstop if you know, it's like it's like thank you but cuz it it has such a bittersweet edge for me you know so you make the shift from animation to live action as somebody that is that loves movies and i try to kind of keep on top of what's happening in the industry women always have like such a huge gap between films like 10 12 15 years is not unheard of and you came in just under 10 <laughs> But you you also changed kind of like art forms. You went from animation to live action. Was that a conscious decision for you? Yes, but it was never my goal. I I know a lot of, you know, Brad Bird, my husband, Kevin Lima, you know, so many, um, Tim Burton, all these animation guys had aspirations to be live action directors because I think it's for validation in the industry because is animation were the bastard children and looked down upon you know that doesn't bother me i'm like eh my my, my the movies i worked on makes a hell of a lot more money than yours so you know you can you can you can all go jump in something you know i don't care i love animation but i got this script put in front of me and i really liked it and i thought well if i'm going to do one this is the one you know and so 
I agreed. I wished I hadn't because it was a miserable experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, um, the children actors were wonderful to work with, and you know, and the actors were fine, and and all that. It was just the process, and it's just a different world. And they are not my people. Those producers, and and the way it's not about making a great movie. It's about the power and the and it just wasn't wasn't my cup of tea and i from the get go i pretty much was miserable <laughs> i thought it was quite lovely and this this the themes i thought it was really like it came as a bit of a surprise to me cuz i thought for sure you had written it yeah. and i go and look and you had it because the themes are so true to even the characters that you've written in the past. That's why I liked the script. It was it spoke to me and uh, Marissa Goodhill was a it was her first script and you know I don't know if she's done anything since but everything has just um you know I have no contact with anyone who worked on that film. There was a lot of duplicity and uh, you know it's like I don't know what I don't know how to play chess. And I don't know how to play chess and politics when people are lying and and doing things behind your back and telling people you said this when you didn't say that, you know, and I don't know how to deal with that. I don't. And, you know, it's happened to me in animation, too, you know, <laughs> uh, and I, I just don't know how to I can't. So I am a sitting duck when it comes to that. And I I, I certainly don't want to do that to anyone. And I never have any aspirations to to try to hang on to my power and stomp other people i just have none of that um in me and so and i just don't know how to that's why i say when i was over sheltered and in a bubble for so i was not prepared for for that kind of stuff at all so yeah i won't be stepping back into that world because i just i you know probably just happened to me again so does directing hold any appeal for you at all um Yes, it does in animation, um, but it has to be with the right people. Um, you know, I've I've had a couple of other projects um, that I, I thought I was getting traction at one on one of DreamWorks, but then that got shut down, and um, and then I had another one that um, was Chinese based and funded and then they were lying about the money and so it was just it was really hard <laughs> and i had my dream team together on that one and we we went to china you know on a research trip and i had i had sharon bridgman and i had um ed gombert and kevin harkey and um sarah reimers on as my editor that she was on brave and and um Richie Chavez, who is my production designer, and um, Yuriko Ito, and, and I just had this amazing group. Doug Walker, Sue Nichols, my the late Sue Nichols was doing story on it as well, and it was just a great team, and we were making a great story, and then suddenly the money stopped showing up, and people were owed money. You know, it was just really hard. We've got almost a full set of reels, you know, so anyone out there interested, you know, I have real, you know, we, but we have to pay our editors before we can see it. You know? uh, but um, no, it's just, so it's, it's been hard. So I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit beat up when it comes to directing. 
and but I I still would love love to give it a go as long as I there's trust there. How do you stay motivated? Pandemic came along at a really good time for me to to just sort of regroup and hunker down and I know people are sick of hearing that phrase but I really did it was sort of like retrench as they call it <laughs> um emotionally you know and just to pull it together so but the the fact of the matter is I love telling stories I love sharing stories I love to inspire with stories I mean that was the whole reason I got into animation is that it was just such a wonderful escape for me, you know, to go into these and just a world that was just unlike anything that I lived in, you know? So I just love to put them out there for people and, you know, with, and it's like I've worked on some really, I've been fortunate enough to work on some really great ones, even just in small roles, but I still feel like I gave something you know i did that splash behind the little mermaid you know that was me i, I boarded that you know it's like that yeah that moment i i put that in there you know and so it's that that keeps me going and so you know talking about the creative process i'm curious about what that looks like for you and if it changes depending on what you're working on so you know if you're working on a film or on a book or on your children's novel like does that the actual like sitting down to do the work look different depending on what you're working on? Yeah, right now it's hard because I love working with people. I love, I mean, that's what I, when I got to CalArts, my tribe, you know, and being able to talk about it and get, you know, I have that with Kevin, but we also approach things very differently. So I like sort of the the group of of kicking around things and sharing that and getting inspired by their work as well as they're inspired by mine and that back and forth. And so the solitary aspect of being a writer and doing these things has been really hard. So I've been trying to find um, artist groups and stuff, you know, because I'm not in a studio and I'm going to be 60 this year. And, you know, no one seems to be interested in hiring older you know, it's not now it's like, OK, I finally figured out, yes, there is sexism out there. But it's like, oh, yeah, look, ageism, too. Woohoo. You know, <laughs> here we go. Double whammy. When you're developing story, do you do like writing or do you take do notes or do you sketch or a combination of things? What's that look for you like for you on a practical level? Lately, it's been mostly writing, but I'm trying to get back into sketching. I miss that. And it's like it was such an integral part of who I was for so long. And becoming a director, even becoming a head of story, it became less, you know, and then becoming a director, um, it was almost non-existent. And when I would draw, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so rusty. Never mind. You know, <laughs> I'll just talk it through. <laughs> but uh so I, I'm I'm wanting to get back. I'm starting to to sketch a bit more and draw. You talk a lot about like mentorship and how that's really important. And over the course, specifically over the last few years, you've become more involved and more vocal about you know mentorship and you know women kind of standing up for themselves in whatever job that they're doing. And you're putting yourself out there clearly in a position that you're not always comfortable in being. Why is it so important that you put yourself out there like that? 
when you know it doesn't always end well? Because what else would I do? I still love telling stories. I still love sharing stories. And so to be able to share them, I have to put myself out there. So, um, you know, I just feel like I'd shrivel up, you know, and, and I don't, and just, <laughs> I don't want to sit and do crosswords all day. <laughs> it's, it's fine when you're waiting for something for, for an hour, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just feel like a little, a big part of me would just die if I didn't put myself out there. You've had a lot of good and bad experiences over the course of your career. Would you do anything different if you could do it all over again? Oh, I've played that what if game. Um, what if I'd never left Disney, you know? Would I have directed? I don't know. Would I have just stayed in story? Would I have gotten fired when so many people got fired at Disney? Very likely. I don't know. You know, so it's like I follow those paths and I go, you know, I'm hitting bump a dead end there. And I did. So, no, I, you know, the one thing I probably wouldn't do, I wouldn't have directed that live action movie. <laughs> if I could go back and not do something, it probably would have been that. And, you know, and it being a parent, you know, boy, would I go back and, and do things a little differently for my daughter's sake. But, you know, but can't do that. So what's the point? So <laughs> just move forward the best you can. That's great advice. And, you know, talking about the advice for, for people that are interested in going into the industry, be it animation or, you know, any sort of creative endeavor where you're going to get beat down a lot. What would you say to them? Just keep your eye on the prize, as they say. Keep your eye on your goals. Keep your eye on what it is that you really, really need for yourself and want for yourself. Um, and keep going for it. You know, it was a chumbawamba or whatever. I get knocked down and I get up again. They're never going to keep me down. You know, you just, that's sort of my theme song. <laughs> At times I sing it a little weaker, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I also try to do it with kindness and respect for my fellow human beings and living things. You know, I just, I, I like I said, I don't get, that chess game of of backstabbing and lying and walking over people i just that to me is despicable and it's just not how you should treat other people unless you very much expect to be treated that way and i don't expect to be treated that way and sometimes i get treated that way but i can at least go to bed at night knowing that i've not done that to anyone and that was our conversation with oscar winning director brenda chapman you can find out more about Brenda and her current projects on our website, twasentertainment.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.